Welcome everybody to Today in Space, and we're back for another episode of People of Science, where we get to speak with people who are working in the industry and talk about what got them into that career, what sparked that inspiration to get into STEM. Uh, there's a lot of folks here who are might be going to school for STEM or went to school for STEM and are now out of the workforce looking for something new, or maybe you just like to know what people that work in science actually do. So that's what People of Science is all about. And this week, we get to talk to Denise from Global Foundries and talk about some really cool stuff around chips in space and really this cool intersection of art and science. So Denise, welcome to the podcast and thanks for being one of our People of Science. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us your, your STEM origin story and what brought you to be working at Global Foundries. Yeah, so these days I am the harsh environment battleground owner, and that's really all about getting chips into deep space and defense. And if you told me I was going to do that back when I was in high school, I would have laughed. I had no <laughs> idea that career existed, let alone uh, the path I'd be taking to get there. Absolutely. Now, that's a wild title. Could you say that one more time for me? That's one of the coolest titles I think I've ever heard. I know, right? I got to go get new business cards now that it's a formalized battleground in the company, but <laughs> harsh environment battleground. And our company has a structured, you know, global foundries, right? We're all mm -hmm. about chips and we've got chips in your phones, chips everywhere. And we've structured our company so that we're oriented towards how our chips are used. And that means we have battlegrounds across different products. And a really big product niche is harsh environments, right? Mm -hmm. Chips that can withstand extreme temperatures and radiation. And that's where I play. Absolutely. The battleground of, of going into space, right? That's um, that's a very unique uh, place. And, you know, as we are building towards on a national level and a global level with the Artemis Accords and the Artemis program, we're sending humans to the moon and, and beyond again, those chips can't fail. So um, could you tell me a little bit more about like what's unique about the like aerospace space application for chips particularly? Like are there some special processes or like how do you guys think about that in the battleground of space? Yeah, no, that's great. So we're a high volume manufacturing company at Global Foundries and you know, that means producing a lot of chips that are everywhere. Mm. Um, so to be able to look at our portfolio and say, which ones of these are intrinsically harsh environment, mm. you know, such that if someone comes in and a chip, right, I describe it as a hamburger, which okay. layer yeah. upon layer upon layer, right? And um, each layer has a design associated with it. Those designs are either circles or they're lines, right? And those stack on top of each other to make a device and a circuit that performs something really unique. And so what we have to do is work with people who are really good um, at designing and redundancy and other mechanisms that work well and customize to specific kinds of processes. So that's mm -hmm. my job is to kind of make those connections. And that's what we call red hard by design. And that's one way to do it. Hmm. And uh, take take us a little bit into like the, for some folks who don't know about silicone chips and wafers and things like that. Uh, could you explain a little bit about that process, even just at a basic level? Yeah, I mean, chips, I mean, it's phenomenal, right? Like I think yeah. about the toys my girls are playing with now versus what I had as a kid. I'm like, <laughs> I feel like, you know, the monkey hitting the obelisk compared to their like dolls, yeah. <laughs> you know, they have a fairy that they can put their hand under and it senses them and then shoots back up in the air and they chase it around. And I'm like, that sensor alone, that's an amazing chip, right? Yeah. And it's, it's something we just take for granted because it's like ramped up everywhere in all mm -hmm. of our products that we use, but they're pretty complex, right? Because you take a wafer, right? A, an ingot, it's kind of grown out, you slice it up, and then you send it into the fab, right? And that, um, we basically, you know, do design upon design upon design on that wafer, right? There's different wafer sizes, 300 and 200. And those are our dies. And those individual ones at the end, after they go through 11,000 process steps or more, right, in a fab, then we cut them up into all the individual dies, and those go out into that sensor and that doll that's 
flying around in my daughter's toys and getting smacked and goes through everything and somehow survives. <laughs> yeah. No, that's 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 crazy. And I've I think I've so I've worked a few different jobs. One was um actually uh, metrology, so laser inspection, a lot of, you know, people taking things apart, moving and having to assemble them again. Um so I've had to get dressed up in the bunny suit and and go into those, you know, clean rooms um before. Um it's it's a re it, I think for most people it's kind of shocking how much goes into protecting just the ma the manufacturing process never mind this thing's going to go on a rocket shake and vibrate like crazy and then go into space i mean that that's wild to me <laughs> absolutely like the cleanliness of what you're talking about having to put on a bunny suit making sure you're bringing nothing into the fab that could contaminate and then you go in this when you walk into a clean room for the first time it's an unbelievable achievement to see all these like vapors flying overhead yeah. and the automation and all the like mental power that goes into design them and they work right that's yeah. i think the most amazing thing is they work reliably and in my job they have to work extremely reliably right and that's one of the terms that some people use is, is trusted right trusted mm. boundary by the department of defense because you have to have that um, surety that they're not only produced well, reliably and of quality, but also securely in these days. Because mm. what if you send a chip into space, right? And then it's not a securely produced chip and you don't know it till it's way out there. What do you do? Mm. Absolutely. Um, so what got you here? What What got you into working into aerospace and like getting into STEM, you mentioned you, you, you didn't think that you'd have this job when you were in high school. What, what did you think in high school? I, um, I really love to paint, play the piano, and I love math. So when I was a kid, I was kind of bouncing back and forth between what I saw as, you know, um, art skill sets and, and doing music and, and loving my math problems. And it seemed like <laughs> had to be a choice between two different careers right because of the mm. way we categorize learning skills for for young people so that was kind of my battle back and forth is am I an artist or am I a scientist and how does yeah. that work no absolutely um I I had a similar art and science thing although mine I've, I've realized now mine was not the math it was more like the scientific concepts and uh, for me it was it was jazz and and playing trumpet um so that morphed into a uh, aerospace degree and uh, doing a podcast about space. So um, where did the, uh, I'm sorry, do I still play? Uh, I started again in the pandemic. Um, I'm actually singing now um, in a, in a choir, um, which is a different, I had to completely learn how to hear again. Um, but I, I injured my, uh, my embouchure playing in um senior year of high school high loud I was first trumpet and I was just you know in retrospect I had worked too hard and I should have built my chops back but uh I I took a class in college uh jazz history course and I learned about some of the trumpet players that would go to Europe and everyone was you know competing with them and trying to say hey you should play higher louder and um I realized what they were describing as a torn uh, muscle in the embouchure was exactly the same problem that I had. So um, I'm building that back up, uh, but it's, it's a process. So it's gotta be hard to have it and then lose it and then come back to it. Like, yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I think brought me to to do this podcast was that, you know, loss of it and then just wanting to perform. So it's become this. <laughs> so so from art to science where did that click um was that in college was that afterwards uh, yeah honestly I, I kept ping-ponging back and forth and mm. you know, I was very very lucky I had some um you know amazing people in my life that you know kind of like I saw as amazing artists and scientists mm. and things like that um, and I got a really unique opportunity when I was about uh, 15, where I ended up uh, winning this scholarship through um, NASA to be able wow. to go down to California. Um, first time on a plane was flying down there. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked at Hughes Basin Communication as an intern mm -hmm. during um, the summer. 
And then on the weekends, there was a group of us um, that did this and we got to go to like JPL and we got to go to all these amazing places to so see. Cool. It was like, it, there, that was the first time, right? I walked into Hughes Space and Communication in a high bay and I saw them building a satellite. Oh my and God. what really did it for me is when they took me in the back room to where they played ping pong to come up with ideas. I'm <laughs> like, so cool. Like what a fun group of people. Yeah. So that was a big one for me um, from like an influence standpoint. And then I also had the other side of it where a painting I did ended up winning a, a national contest and getting displayed in the Capitol building, which wow. is surreal, right? And so, you know, especially when we teach so much about like, you know, what you're good at it is is like, uh, like how you're supposed to label what you do, right? As mm. opposed to seeing it as like a blend of skill sets that you can take wherever you want. That, I don't know, maybe that was me, but it took me a little bit to see things a bit differently that you go after like these as, as skills and piece them mm -hmm. together. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that, exactly what you're talking about is uh, it's it's what's brought me to this podcast. And it's what I think this segment is really about. I remember I was going to school for aerospace engineering in 2008, and there wasn't content online. You know, there was it was always it had to come from a book. And you had to be in a library that had this kind of stuff. Um, so for me, it was kind of like, how do we get content out there? Because I didn't even know what job I really wanted or what I felt I could be good at because it was so brand new to me. So this is kind of a way to for folks like yourself and others who are trying to find that connection of what they're passionate about and what they could do for work. Um, I think you're spot on. Um, how did, so, so Hughes, that's crazy, huge satellite. Did you end up making connections there that, that brought you to uh, the next stage in your career, but how did you get from there to, to global foundries? Yeah, no, so that, the, the time of Hughes, I was only 15 years old. So I was still in high school and it was just like, it was a, unreal experience absolutely amazing program that the united states offers like do more of that we like as young people we need to see what it's really like because it's so yeah. different than the classroom and unbelievably grateful for that opportunity and then when i got to high school i was like well i'm gonna be an art major <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i started you know i did that but i couldn't stop the math which because i loved it so i just yeah. kept taking advanced math for a while and then going back and forth and then um mm -hmm. Eventually, I was talking to a physics professor, and they were telling me about their research, you know, and I was just blown away. I was like, oh, I'd love to help out with that. Yeah. <laughs> how I ended up, you know, they said, oh, come come do a, a major in the material science department. And, nice. um, and I ended up doing a portrait for them, and then that turned into dog portraits. So I kept doing dog portraits, and then somehow it turned into research, and then I was going to, you know what I mean? It's one thing nice. after another, and I, I never would have guessed it, but I just kind of followed what my passion was and yeah somehow ended up with some you know amazing people guiding me along the way yeah and that really seems to be the the common thread with a lot of folks is you know it's the people that you meet you know the the, the degree and the things that you learn in school are great um but like at the end of the day if you can see a job that you would actually like or people that you would like then you know to look for that and yeah. Yeah, that that's huge. That's huge. So wow. So, so yeah, the art brought you into the science. That's amazing. Uh, did you were you conscious of the art and math uh, like combination? Was are the two the same for you, or do you see them as as two different things? Well, I'm gonna go back to music because right? I think you can probably relate on this one. But the way music is written can be so mathematical, and mm. there's something really amazing about the patterns in it. So for me, you know, part of it's that there's an art to to the math of it, and yeah. I'll never forget when I finally got finally got to a math class where it connected back to something real. I feel like you have to get really far in math for it to suddenly yeah. make sense from a science field perspective. Totally, yeah. So I, yeah. It kind of went back and forth for me. I love that. No, that's great. Um, and I, th I feel like that's how it is. There's so much that you can learn from it. Like it's, you, you're just going to evolve as you, as you learn about it. Yeah. yeah. From there, I ended up doing research, which uh, is mm. what really changed me. And, mm. you know, it was recommended to me to try out um, some research and I was doing it on what we call electro optic 
polymers. There was a mm -hmm. professor that um, who was building out these unique polymers. So I started testing them while I was in college. And then there was another university down, um, University of Arizona, that was actually building the modulators. So I started going there in the summers to build them and then coming back. And I did it back and forth for a few years, right, while I was finishing up school. And then they're like, well, if you like this, you should get a PhD. And I'm like, oh, okay, tell me more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's how I ended up getting my, um, you know, PhD in polymer physics was... I just wanted to do more research and then landed yeah. at Global Boundaries. So that's, that's incredible. How was the PhD process uh, for you? How did, did what did you enjoy? What was challenging? Oh, I it's all about learning how you learn, right? Because mm. it's you know so much in school for me is not like what it is when you're in a workspace. You're learning skill sets and you're learning yeah. how you work and you're learning what. What makes you tick right like are you someone who wants to dig into the details and then you know come out a few days later and be like hey guys i figured out a pattern and yeah. i want you guys to run with it or are you someone that wants to stay at a high level but know how to poke to dig in at the right mm -hmm. times you know with the people you work with and you know like are you someone with a big vision or are you someone with um a lot of like detail you know what i mean i could go on and on but yeah it's, it's your skills right like mm -hmm. what makes you tick and that's, I think, what a PhD does is it gives you this huge open project, um, which for me was about cataract formation. And it's, you know, about like, how do, how do these proteins in your eye aggregate over time to form cataracts? And what can you do to, to change that? And once you dig into solving that problem, you learn a lot about how you learn. Mm. That's awesome. Um, thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, so Global Foundries, you you get there what was what was it when you first started uh was this the role that that you were looking for did it take some time i think folks would like to know like how, how do you progress in a in a stem career once once you get to a place that you like i feel like it's it's always tough to get your first job right mm. because you've yes. for me i was in school a long time i wasn't sure how it really translated to what was out there so the thing that blows me away about the generation of kids that i'm seeing coming out of college and reading their resumes is they're doing so many internships every yeah. year and i'm like that's that's the right thing to do because then you pick up what you're doing and how to translate it because mm -hmm. figuring out hey what skill sets did I learn here can translate to the job that they're advertising that I don't know a lot about based upon a page of, you know, bullet points and, and yeah. acronyms that everybody seems to know, but me, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that, for me, getting the first job is tough. And I'd really recommend um, stepping back and going through it with someone to see how you translate your skill sets to yeah. a specific job. You really got to go after one job and really customize your resume. Mm. Uh, so for me, that's, you know, I jumped into my first job and it was in lithography and that's, you know, mm. for polymers in semiconductors, they're the temporary layer, meaning, you know, that hamburger I'm talking about that you build up to make a complex chip um, to be able to etch into it to make a permanent pattern, you have to put a temporary polymer first, and then you use a mask, right, which has holes in it and wherever the light comes through it'll change and crosslink right and then you wash away the rest so you end up with a temporary pattern a, a, you know much like lithography press printing right. um, it's just with a mask and with light um, and so that was what I started in but I actually did um, extreme ultraviolet lithography which is 13.5 nanometer wavelength light whoa yeah that's so, and and that was doing the etching was the UV. So it, it, the way it works is like the size, the wavelength of the light that goes mm -hmm. through the mask dictates the size of lines you can pattern. Mm -hmm. So 13.5 nanometers, you know, depending upon what kind of processing you do or whatever, but it can get to, you know, seven to five nanometers or even less if you're really creative. Um, but basically <laughs> the light goes through and it, it, Cures part of it, and then you wash away the rest, and then um, you whatever's left, you etch down, and the parts that are protected don't get etched, but the parts that are, mm. right? So it, it kind of makes these temporary patterns to permanent patterns in silicon. Mm. And it, it's it's giving you the pathways for all the things that these these circuits need. 
Exactly. It's one layer at a time. So you've made your lines on one level and then you now go and you deposit a new material and then you do the same thing again, but now in a new material. And that's how you kind of build it up and you make all these connections um, through the metal. Very cool. Very cool. It's the amount of people it takes to make a semiconductor, like, and the amount of technical depth for each aspect, there's mm -hmm. layer owners, people who are phenomenal uh, experts about every aspect of one layer because it's so complex. Oh, I love this. Let's, let's dive into that because I think that's a cool way for people to think about jobs that could exist around technology. So you have, you have layer owners. Um, are there, are there people for each specific process or is that part of the layer um, ownership? You are, you're hitting the nail on the head. There's so many different kinds of jobs. There's someone who owns the layer of it. There's someone who owns the tool. There's someone who, um, you know, writes the instruction manual for building the chip. You know, I worked with someone who the job before writing the instruction manual for the chip, she worked at the CIA, which was the Culinary <laughs> Institute of America, not the other one. But <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm an aerospace and defense side of the job, but uh, it was good. Um, no. It was good. But no, no, she, she used to um, do all this amazing cooking and she would always be giving me tips. And she also had this great mind for technical writing. So what kind of degree do you need to go into semiconductors? Anything you want, right? It's really mm -hmm. about figuring out what skills do I know that translate? Um, you know, we, we obviously hire people with, you know, EE, MECI, like we also have so many range of jobs, like right out of college, right out of um, high school. We have um, technician training programs for people who are new to it and want to ramp in. It's really, are you passionate about it? Because, you know, there's, programs in place to get you to be the expert you want to be yeah that's awesome uh th this is exactly what this, <laughs> this segment is about so thank you for, for sharing all that folks let's take a quick break from the episode to talk about the new merch that's right today in space merch the starship pen is done and here you're seeing all three versions of what we have rud and black the Galactic Hue Blue and the Terraform Green. These are the hexatubes that hold your Starship pen in there. And we've been doing some work to make sure that they ship without moving around so they're not damaged in the process and so that you can bring this around. And another addition here is the Starship Tower horizontal display stand, which hooks right around the existing hexatube and allows you to space nerd out in all your glory and have the pen with you at your desk, wherever you want this to be. And once you're using it, you can put it on display. That's what was missing when we had the first prototype out there. But every order will get this whole thing. The price is still $65, even with all these improvements. And because you're listening to the podcast, there is a discount code. Discount code is RUD23 for 25% off the $65. If you're in the US, free shipping. Go to ag3dprinting.etsy.com. Look for the Starship pen. Pick your Hexatube color and get one of these Starship pens. It's a great way to support the podcast and it's really the first premium merch we've done here. So every Starship is unique. It'll come with a part card that will have your Starship number, your unique Starship number. So order today, get free stickers, and all of this amazing premium stuff for your space nerd needs. Thank you for all your support. It's ag3dprinting.etsy.com. RUD23 for 25% off and free shipping in the US. All your support means everything and this helps us do a whole bunch of other stuff. But without further ado, let's get back to the show. So now with, with being the, the head of the battleground for, for aerospace and defense, um, tell us a little bit more about the application of these chips, um, like how wide ranging, uh, and, and, you know, I guess anything that you think is like really interesting that people might not know about that. So I was talking about the instruction manual for the chip. We, we of course have an acronym for it. It's the PDK, the process design kit, but it's, it's such an open-ended thing, right? It says, hey, here are rules for how you make your lines line up and how your, your contacts connect your lines. Mm. And that's what our customers are given, which means anyone can 
take these instruction manuals and then build any kind of chip they want. And so my job is to help people be able to build chips that survive in deep space, right? They're the design experts. They're the ones that know how to make redundancy or dissipation mechanisms or whatever they're doing based right. upon what kind of environment they're going to be in. But it's my job to help them find technologies that are intrinsic as well as pathfind to get those intrinsic um, platforms available in secure um, facilities, right? Because they're doing really unique things. And some of them are just these amazing academic purposes that are going into space. But due to the advances in cybersecurity, as well as, you know, hardware changes, it's critical that those are secure and built in a trusted facility. So that's really what my job is, is to help bring those onshore in the United States and get them in secure facilities and then get people ramped up with the right connections and experts. Well, and it's interesting to think about how chips, uh, I, I think there's a lot of folks will think, you know, the direct person, like the person who's launching the rocket or the the person who's sending the spacecraft. And what the chip just allows us to do is is completely design a mission based on, you know, what we can push through this chip and what it's capable of calculating. Um it's it's really uh, a crazy enablement that we're able to do with this. Um, and it makes me think of automation and everything that we're seeing with AI and a chip shortage at the same time, just globally. Um, how, how does automation play a role in, in creating these chips right now for space or in, Autom- in, in general? Yeah, automation is critical because it allows us to put people on the things that we need to innovate, Mm. right? So automation is going to, we use automation to ensure um, security in some cases, as well as get all the data to the, these minds that can go through it and figure out the patterns and what we need to do next, right? Mm. You want to put people on certain kinds of jobs and you want um, other things to enable those people to do their job better. And that's what automation's for. It's really helping them to do their job better. Yeah, and and I, I from a creative perspective, I think auto AI and and things that are coming down in the future make a lot more sense because I'm trying to use it and 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 not just uh, you know read a headline and think I know uh, what it does. And and for me, how I'm trying to use it as a as a creator, and and even as a scientist, I'm I'm trying to help it do the work that it's just going to take me too long to do. And I can kind of pull back from a project and say, okay, instead of being in the mud all the time, I can kind of be like, okay, well, AI is helping with this. Let's focus on what the really big picture is here. Um, And it feels like uh, the people that are figuring that out now or know it now are the ones that are really taking advantage of it. Absolutely. I think there's a critical place in, you know, I mean, we're at that part of the curve where technology's taken off, right? Mm. And in terms of what we can do and how much data we have, there's a lot. But being able to facilitate that data in a way that we can take intelligent action is yeah. a very tricky thing, right? And that's going to mm. take a few rounds, but we're getting there already. I mean, just if I, you know, again, I, I reflect on, you know, when I look at the changes in my, yeah, I have a three and a seven-year-old, right? Yeah. The changes in their life um, of, of what's commonplace to them versus what was for me and my, you know, AOL dial tone that was novel, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's a huge change, right? Mm-hmm. And it's- And that it's was a huge change. change. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've been airing on the side of, you know, it's it's way better to understand it because as soon as it becomes magic uh, that's when i think it's trouble so absolutely yeah i agree with you and that's that's kind of i don't know the thing that amazes me but it's also at times it's like oh my goodness there's so much more to learn there's so much more right yeah Uh, yeah it is it is well but that's the stem field for you it's it's a never-ending uh gauntlet of learning it really is yeah um so what what are some um some unique challenges in you know 
designing these and also like integrating uh, for high volume manufacturing? Yeah, so for harsh environment, like getting chips into space in particular, there's there's two primary ways to do it, right? There's, you know, I talked a little bit about design, right? Like this mm -hmm. idea of an instruction manual and that's called rad hard by design. But there's a whole nother methodology called rad hard by process. Rad hard by process is where you look at that, um, you know, instruction manual you give and we say, well, if we make these changes here, it's actually gonna harden your chip. Now, what, what does that really mean? Well, let's step back and look at what's going on in space right now. There's you know, the um, here and there unique um, academic launches, right, that go into deep space. And those ones, they go through a lot of rigorous testing um, and qualification to get them into deep space. But we have something really amazing happening right now, the commercialization of space. There's hundreds of stuff going up. There's, there's doves, there's, yeah. you know, like all these like, um, you know, satellites like someone built a, a, a satellite out of legos got it into space and it worked like how <laughs> did that happen right and and essentially what that means is they're sending up commercial chips which aren't rad hard by design and that's great because it's new and they're they're getting that data but they're decaying very quickly mm -hmm. and if you look at what's going on in legislation right now people are finally starting to say, wait a minute, we got to clean up space. We got to take care of it. We can't just launch mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff and let it die. That's not a long-term business model that's viable for us as a whole if we want to keep progressing in this field. So that's where Rad Harbite process comes in because it says, hey guys, you don't want to spend you know, eight years or five years qualifying your designs and making them custom. Use yeah. Rad Harbite process. We just change out the process a bit your existing designs suddenly get a bump and they last longer in space. Hmm. Like we're solving a little bit of that sustainability problem by giving them better chips without asking them to trade off on their time to launch. So hmm. that's where I see things going. And that's what I'm really you know, excited about collaborating on is how we go yeah. after wrap our bike process with other companies. I, it's incredible because, uh, you know, we both, were young enough to see an, uh, an aerospace industry that was just choked out and ready to to pass out. I mean, it it there it was scary there for a little bit about whether or not the U.S. was going to even keep its space station up in orbit. Um, and never mind, you know, being locked in with uh with the Soyuz system to send humans into space, um, with all of these new, you know, satellites and commercial uh launches um there's just there's so much more opportunity for for things so that that's very cool um for some of the new stuff that's going out there um that little extra bump that you're talking about i've been really thinking more about the the ownership that people that are launching things into space have for the entirety of that ships crafts life um from from launch to deorbit um right. and and it it sounds like even just at this level of of the process where you can give yourself the opportunity to do that exactly yeah. it, it yeah. really gives them another option because i mean their primary yeah. goals are hey we want to launch fast and we're okay with making mistakes because we want the the learning that comes from it we mm -hmm. want to get things up there and we want to collect a lot of data and, and then make new choices, right? And it, right. it's enabled all these new companies across the globe, which is a fantastic, right? For, mm -hmm. for advances in science. But now we're at a stage where enough has been up there that we're recognizing a new pattern and it's mm -hmm. guys, it's getting messy and we've got to take yeah. care of it, right? You know, mm -hmm. we've already seen what happened on the planet when we ran fast without yep. acknowledging you know, um, repercussions. So let's let's be a little smarter as we advance into space. We're now moving beyond ourselves so i think this is a great time to say hey what can we do a little bit different and and work together to meet your goals of mm -hmm. getting up there quickly and advancing but still thinking about it in an intelligent way that's going to allow your your products to last longer yeah and it, it it's it's funny i was talking to some friends the other day who you know we were talking about mars and the moon and people were kind of like well why why wouldn't we just fix stuff that's here 
And the more that you look into these space applications, much of what we're doing or trying to do with all of it is stuff that can be used here on earth, you know, and, you know, using every single bit of resource and reusing every bit of that resource as many times as possible um, in, in order, in, in some cases, recycling it. Um, like those are all things that we actually need here. So it's almost like space is the, the battleground for us to learn things to then use here to fix it. And, and I, I really do think that metaphorically and symbolically, like the earth and being on this uh, rock by itself and not having the option to go out into space literally conceals us in a bubble. Um, and it, getting outside of that is, is just like breaking out of the box, thinking about things. Um, I, it's just, we got to get more people talking about it and thinking about it. That That's my, thought about it anyways oh no I completely agree with you and you know the thing I'm visualizing while you're talking is what about people living on the moon like what kind of infrastructure would we need and then if you step back what that means from a, a zero footprint perspective for someone to be able to survive up there right that's learning that we could translate heartily to what we do on the earth you know and the infrastructure we'd have to develop I mean it's a phenomenal concept and it's what we're marching towards right now. And mm -hmm. in terms of energy, looking at reactors, it would really allow us to reevaluate what we're doing here on earth. Mm -hmm. We have history, right? Um, in terms of how we've gotten to where we are and the fears we have um, in different countries, it's, it's because of the history of how we got here. But if we were able to step back and come up with a, a neutral solution for, for survivability on Mars, we might suddenly realize that there's been so many advancements in reactors or other things that would cause us to completely change what the best case scenario is because we throw everything out, right? That yeah. history doesn't come when you have to build something new in yeah. a that's completely science defined on your restrictions, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to pick the best case technology. And it's only then that people are going to be able to let go of the history of um, you know, how we got there on earth and actually implement change. So I agree with you uh, completely. Yeah. I, I, I really do think that there's an opportunity for space to be a beacon of hope for, for just like we had back in the day. I mean, the, the, I call it the space conundrum where the space progress conundrum, where the last time we had this kind of progress in space, we were also facing, uh, civil injustices and wars and all of that happening all at the same time. Um, I don't know why the two have to happen at the same time. I would prefer it didn't, but it it has repeated itself. So it's just a strange, strange thing. And so I, that's where my hope comes from, even though that means we're in some strange times. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it, it's absolutely amazing what we have in the United States and, and in terms of our ability to focus on um, arguing back and forth that we don't agree, but we still make decisions and move forward together. Like yeah. that's phenomenal. And yes, sometimes it leads to delayed decision-making, but it leads to the best decision for our country. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way every country operates. Right. No. There's in some countries it's, I'm going to make the decision. We're going to do it no matter what. And mm -hmm. um, it's also like, I'm going to tier information so that not everyone can see everything. And then we're making a decision. And as a result, yeah, there's always going to be that push and pull when someone starts to advance and another country wants to, to push back until we find a more uniform way of engaging. But yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Absolutely. Um, so let, let's talk about some some fun uh, space stuff here. So um, have you been following along with James Webb Space Telescope at all? Yeah, we've actually, so this is really cool, but um, <laughs> Like we have chips on there. Like That's how amazing. crazy is that? It's incredible. I know, right? Like, uh, so we've got a global footprint, right? That's why we're called Global Foundries. We're the the, the first um, fab to really think that way, which was uh, phenomenal for our fab because it helped us to be resilient through the supply chain. But um, we have a fab up in Vermont. Um, mm. They actually made chips that went on James Webb telescope. Yeah. That's so cool. That's right. so cool. Um, I mean, what it's done to show us uh, the universe in, in an even more advanced way than Hubble is is kind of mind blowing. Uh, I was born, I think, a month or two before it got into orbit, but 
Um, it's just crazy to think about that and how much, you know, everyone's screensaver has a Hubble photo. Now it's going to be James Webb photos. Um, has What has what you've seen come back from James Webb Space Telescope and also knowing that your chip survived the origami unfolding in space uh, <laughs> uh what what's your take on what it's done and how, how does it make you feel i i love to paint so i love mm. um for me it's, it's inspiring in that sense i do a lot of unusual paintings here and there on that side on the personal <laughs> side, right and and on the personal side also i just uh it's amazing to think that something that all these minds came up with and said, hey, let's go get it out there. And <laughs> it worked and they did it. And it's not just, you know, one or two people, right? That's yeah. like the thousands of people have touched different aspects of that to be able to make it a success, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many skill sets in terms of yeah. or you need someone to organize things and, and program mm -hmm. manage things. You need someone to understand the mechanics and the materials. You need someone to build a chip and understand how that's going to drive the brain of it, right? Like all these different aspects require such different skill sets and people all came together and they did it. And now we've yeah. got photographs. It's, it's like pretty cool. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you been following along on any of the more commercial uh, or I should say civilian uh, space launches like Inspiration4 or dear moon or or what blue origins trying to do um have you been following along on some of those launches i've been reading this book um gosh now i can't blink oh, when the heavens went on sale oh yes <laughs> i i've been going through that as well it's like it's a fun um yeah it, it's such an interesting like, eric Berger. Um, i'm trying to remember if that's his book or uh, not. i don't think that was him i think it's um jamie I'll look it up real quick, but but continue. Yeah. No, no. I for me, like the story of how these um, companies have come out, you know, swinging and to be able to actually launch things into space successfully and then create business models and succeed, it's mm -hmm. huge. It's wow. it's such an advancement for science to have so many people going after it um, with mm -hmm. success. What are your thoughts on it? So, uh, and it's Ashley Vance, uh, who Vance. did it. Um, he did a great, um, biography on, um, on Elon Musk, uh, back in the day. Um, that actually was very good for prepping me to get into the tech, uh, industry, surprisingly enough. So he, he does good stuff. Um, but yeah, that book is very interesting because, you know, the, the SpaceX story is so, uh, so told so many times. Uh, but there were so many other th stories happening and this whole industry was being lurched forward, even though it didn't necessarily want to be. Um, and it's, or in the way that it was, I should say. Um, and to see all these individuals that came together, made relationships and uh, the, the stories that are in when the heavens went on sale, we're really seeing the next generation of it happen right now where a lot of the folks that join those companies have trickled off. And it's, it's almost like a trickle down effect of the whole industry. We've had these, these cowboys of, for, for lack of a better word for it, uh, aerospace companies um, advance everything. And now everyone's got ideas that they, they see are possible. So that book, I think sets the ground for what's happening today really, really well. Yeah, and it's it's made for an interesting split in the space industry, right? Mm. Because historically, it was all you know a few U.S. government and defense industrial based partners. You know, they call we call them dibs because we love our acronyms, but it's you know these companies who who get out there and actually make the satellite, right? Mm. Um, and it was historically just those players, right? And then with this new push. Um, of all these creative minds coming out and making companies and finding ways to launch on their own without having yeah. to ride on other, you know, government launches. Suddenly you get all these new businesses. But it, from my perspective, it's created two kinds of business, right? And mm -hmm. that's the um, the people who still go through the rigorous long-term qualification to get it into deep space and make a chip last a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then need that like security aspect. And then there's those people who are just giving it a shot and taking whatever they can yeah. get 
exactly. Which, yeah. you know, both models lead to different kinds of uh, disruptive innovation, right? Like yeah. in terms of, you know, one finds uh, rigorous data to really refine what's going on. The other one finds unique disruptions that suddenly can make a big difference. And those two mm -hmm. together running fast is what's going to change in my yeah. mind, the space industry. Because we're now being able to piece together the best learning from both of those. And, yeah. you know, I see kind of a, a conflict, you know, sometimes within companies when I talk to different folks, because some of them still adhere to one versus the other. But yes. I see both as being critical. I don't think there should be a conflict. I think we need both of those kinds of um, movement to happen. Mm -hmm. And it happens to translate right to Leo versus like deep space yeah. um, due to the rigors of survivability. But I think it's what's critical um for advancements i completely agree and you know i and, and this podcast has also been like a uh medium for me to kind of challenge like put it out there and if i'm wrong i'm i'm gonna say yeah i was wrong and and i was stuck in that new space old space um argument for a while until um i started going to see uh, a launch and and when i saw my first launch and saw the people that were there um it 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 like you said it's it's about the industry and everybody uh progressing and um it's really a really really cool thing and i think the challenges of the division will be there but um i think there's way more people that want to just make it happen if if we didn't have ten years of a uh, real slowdown in the industry, I think that division could have been a lot stronger. But people just want to go to space. Like, let's go! <laughs> it's the time. It's it's served to bring in new generations um, mm. this passion, and you know, like in that amazing book we were talking about, there's you know these these folks who came in green and somehow after a few launches managed to get it to work in a different way. So, I mean, you've yeah. just brought in a whole new set of information to a field that needs to innovate. So that's a fantastic thing when you start, uh, you know, cross-pollinating all these minds, which yeah. minds, so why not? Absolutely. And, you know, NASA's done, you know, a good amount of research on like, okay, if we were going to go to Mars, what are all the technologies we need? Even the moon, what are all the technologies we need? And, when you look at the problem, even from that detailed perspective, you need a lot of different minds. And and like one of the great things I've I've had, I'm probably probably over a decade now in the workforce, and after seeing new people join and being a new person a few times, being a fresh set of eyes is one of the most valuable things that that you can be on a team, um, especially when you don't know anything and. Um, I think it's being okay with the fresh eyes and, and welcoming it um, and welcoming honest feedback of, hey, like, why do you guys do this this way? Like, I just, that just doesn't make sense. And then having to give a reason for it, that's, that keeps everything fresh. It keeps everything um, honest, you know, because we're humans and we can get caught up in, in that stuff. So I, I feel the industry... And specifically, the even the military side, the defense side of things, um, with Space Force and people like Embedded Ventures that are trying to, you know, get the private advancement with the military side of things. Um, I think, I think it's a beautiful thing that we're starting to see happen with fresh eyes. Absolutely. I mean, what an amazing thing there with Space Force and their uh, flexibility yeah. to make changes and what they're doing and the collaboration with the Air Force. Like, I think that speaks volumes about what we're doing as a country. Uh, it's, it's, you know, exciting to have, uh, you know, guardians going out there and looking at yeah. this new uh, arena of what we can do from an innovation standpoint as well. Absolutely. Um, so as, as we're closing out here, um, are there any, anything we didn't touch about global foundries that you wanted to, to mention? And even, you know, folks that, are interested in this and where they they might be able to apply or, or how they should go about that or anything like that? Absolutely. So I've, I've been with Global Foundries for going on 13 years now. Awesome. And uh, I've, I've done all sorts of jobs at Global Foundries. And I ended up landing at this job and then creating the, the Harsh Environment Battleground um, with, of course, a collaboration and, and expertise from uh, my colleagues, you know, working together. But 
my point is just, you never know what you're going to go after. And we, we hire so many different kinds of people. It's really about what skill sets do I have and how does it translate? Um, you may see some unusual job online and, and think to dismiss it, but don't just, just translate what you have and into what you're passionate that you're reading about. And that's what people want is they want to work with someone who's passionate. And yeah. I think it's a huge difference and fresh eyes are critical. We have um, one of the best intern programs in the country. Um, I, I just had an intern work with me and, you know, he's phenomenal, just bringing in new eyes and really innovating. And he did a lot of work, you know, because we really want to go after harsh environment battleground with um, security and care, right, due to um, a lot of export controls and other things. And he did all this phenomenal work training the internal teams and learning about it himself and then connecting and translating between legal and technical. And that is a hard ah, job, but coming in with fresh hard. eyes, he able yeah. to, he was able to do it and he did it well. Mm. And, and my point being, you can come in with any degree. So, you know, just take a look at the jobs and go for it. Awesome. Is that on the global foundries website? Is that the best place for them to look? Absolutely. Cool. Um, any last words for anyone that's looking to get into STEM or, or even um, just as from your unique perspective that you'd like to, to close out with? I want to see more artists hired. <laughs> that's my thought on life. I feel like uh, that's one of the reasons I've, you know, been able to communicate some complex ideas is I have my, my simple visual mind where I like <laughs> to translate things and imagine. So, you know, for me, I'd really like to see the industry as a whole opening up their lens. Let's, mm. let's look at really seeing how we bring in different perspectives into the room. And that's not just different job titles or different, um, you know, what kind of diversity. It's really, this person has a really unique way of seeing the world. Let's bring them into the room and, and see if we can argue and then come to a new conclusion. I love it. Thank you, Denise, for coming on People of Space, uh, People of Science, and talking about all things space and uh, and sharing your your experience at Global Foundries and the and the the harsh environments battleground. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Absolutely, folks. Spread love and spread science. Be well. Be good to yourself, and we'll see you on the next episode of Today in Space. See ya.